Coming up on today's show, the culture of hockey. Some intense polling has been done in our country. We'll also take a dive into a World War I-era cave shelter and aliens. We know that there's some change in the way the U.S. government is approaching it, and a whole lot of you have UFO stories. All right. Hockey, hockey, hockey. The culture around hockey. There's some new polling just sort of gauging how Canadians feel about this. Uh, what are our thoughts on where we stand and where we're headed? So to get into that now, we're going to chat with Dave Korzynski, who's a research director with the Angus Reid Institute, who was involved in putting together this survey. Dave, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Hey, no problem. Thank you for having me. So we can get into the culture question in a minute here. But first of all, let's just sort of... Um, get the lay of the land in terms of who was surveyed here because you know you look into just how closely people are involved in the game that was sort of a factor here a lot of the people that you talk to are people with first-hand lived experience with hockey correct yeah the um it's interesting when you when you survey a population you don't really know what you're going to get if there's no previous data on it so we wanted to run a question that was prior to getting in, involved in how people feel about hockey and the pride they take in it and those types of issues, just what's your experience with youth hockey? And mm-hmm. you know, 62% of Canadians say that they have at, at least some experience with it, and uh, 24%, um, the highest number by a slight margin, um, had a very close connection, either a family member, you know, a, a brother or sister who played, a close friend or a, a partner, uh, 23% say that they played when they were younger, and then 22% um, are kind of family observers. They watch the game as a, an aunt and uncle, a grandparent, etc. Um, so yeah, and, and those overlap. Like in, in off, often cases, you'll have people that are a number of those things. So it really just shows you that for a, a firm majority of Canadians, this is something that is very close to them. Yeah, it's part of everyday life for sure. Now, getting into the questions around the culture of hockey, what did uh, what did you find? What stood out for you? Well, there's some good, um, and there's also some bad. You know, the, the interesting thing is that. Uh, if you look at the the value that Canadians place on this, and I know there's a lot of happy Edmonton Oilers fans are going to hear this. I'm out in Vancouver, and so it's it's not quite a, as good of a situation. Um, but more than 90% of of Canadians say that they think that hockey gives people a sense of community in this country. They think that it's a part of Canadian identity, yep. um, and they see a lot of benefits of youth involvement in terms of the traits that it teaches, you know, those 4 a.m. practices make you uh, pretty accustomed to hard work. Um, <laughs> you know, being Builds involved character. in hockey. Exactly, yeah. And being involved in hockey, you know, getting to know people, learning those social skills, and, and being more prepared to deal with things outside the rink. So those are the good aspects, um, which are pretty universally recognized. Um, in terms of uh, the, the other way that we went with this, it was we presented a few issues that have been talked about in the last couple of years, really high-profile issues, and said, do you think this is a problem when it comes to your experience with youth hockey? Um, is it something that is, is a real issue, or is it kind of overblown? Um, and we see that, you know, overall, 52% of Canadians say that they think that um, one of those issues, misogyny, you know, not respecting women or girls, mm-hmm. the way that, that young players interact with, with um, women, they say that that's a problem, um, and what's most interesting is that that group of people who played when they were younger that we asked um, are actually a little bit higher than the, than that Gen Pop sample. In, in saying this, it rises to 56%, with one in five saying that it's a serious problem. 
um, and that they think that it needs to be dealt with. So there, there certainly are some underlying issues, I think, that Canadians recognize. Yeah, and a couple of the other things you looked at, uh, and one that we hear a lot about in hockey, bullying. That's, uh, that's another area that people say is an issue with the culture of hockey, correct? Yeah, yeah, and that's something that uh, I think we've seen in terms of um, a lot, a lot of coach-player interactions. Sure. We've seen we we found that as, as an issue, and just with uh, you know kids that are kind of in in the hockey clique that that might you know be exclusionary to other kids. You know, there's there's that a really strong kind of wealth gap oftentimes in hockey. You know, right. it 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 can be prohibitive to enter, and I think that there's a sense that. You know, 31% uh, think that it's a significant problem. Uh, 27% say that it's it's a problem, but it's it's maybe not something that's necessarily uh, detrimental to the game. It's just an issue that is is like bullying more broadly in society. So, again, there you got 58% who think it's a problem, just 10% who say that they don't think it's a problem at all. Um, so, and I think that this is something that hockey organizations and Hockey Canada minor leagues are aware of, and they're they're starting to put protocols in place and talk to players Certainly about are. these sort of issues. Yeah, yeah, you're so absolutely I think there is right. Progress being made, and and you know, and as we talked about earlier, there's a big push towards diversity. That's and, and that's at the minor league levels, that's at pro league levels, you name it. That's been a big push around the whole hockey community for some time now. So, how do people feel in terms of uh, sexuality and race, and those two? You know, that has been an issue, and you know. Hockey is for everyone is the slogan. So, what's uh, what's the feeling that Canadians have about that area? Yeah, you know what's really interesting in this data is that when you look at people who identify as a visible minority in hockey community versus those who don't, um, those those first questions we talked about, those positive aspects are near identical. You know, ninety three percent saying that hockey is an important part of culture, regardless of whether or not you're a visible minority um, or not. Um, and when you look at the question of exclusion racism, however, there's a pretty notable gap um, in the percentage who see that as a problem, who, who identify as a visible minority. It rises to 57%, whereas for people who aren't, um, it's it's below 50%. It's just about there, but a statistical difference, um, and particularly those saying that they think it's a significant problem, um, for those people who played hockey, again, a little bit higher than the the average in saying that they think that that type of exclusion and, and trying to get everybody involved is a problem and is something that needs to be worked on. So um, I think that the particularly the NHL, you, you mentioned their hashtag and a lot of their efforts on mm-hmm. social media and at games, having people speak out. You know, we saw Matt Dumba in the bubble yep. I mean, in Edmonton last year make a statement about Black Lives Matter. I think it's something that, that the league is aware of, and, and this just kind of provides um, a little bit of confirmation that, you know, people in the community, too, while they love the game, they do realize that there is progress to be made. Yeah, most definitely. I think that's fair. Um, you touched on it earlier, and I'm just wondering if you have any more data around it, sort of like as you work through the ages of the people that were surveyed in this, does it seem to you that people who are older and haven't been around the game, maybe they played when they were a kid and have that impression of what hockey was like, compared to people who are still involved in the game now? Because I think it has changed quite a bit. Um, Are you able to pick out any signs of progress through this polling? Yeah, we certainly do. Um, You know, we asked everybody who said that they think that this is a problem, um, and we asked them, you said, you know, based on your experience, do you think that it's actually getting better, or right. do you think that this is something that um, we're kind of just, 
you know, treading water on. Um, And about one in three, about three times the number who say it's getting worse actually say that it is getting better. Um, They they think that there's, there's progress being made. And I think that it's pretty obvious to a lot of people that there are, you know, investments in programs being made and Hockey Canada is pushing out their programming to talk to players and, and, and really, um, you know, make a point of saying, you know, these are realities that you're going to encounter and, and these are things that we've got to certainly be aware of and, and try to be better with. And, you know, it's something when you look at bullying, there's so much emphasis that has been put on that yes. over the years. I think it would be hard to say that, that it's not getting a little bit better. I think that just the awareness and the fact that we're putting resources into this certainly does help. And that, that does look to, to be reflected in the data. There, there, uh, about half of people say that it's kind of just staying the same. But like I said, about three or four times as many say it's getting better as say it's getting worse. So there is a sense that, um, that, these programs or at least the conversations that we're having are paying off. Well, that's good to hear. That's fantastic. Uh, we'll leave it on that positive note. Thanks very much, Dave. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Dave Korzynski, who is a research director at the Angus Reid Institute, who did this polling uh, pretty extensive into the culture of hockey and how Canadians feel about uh, the direction that the game is heading in. And it's 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 getting better. I think that's the message that we need to take away. Is it perfect? Certainly not. Um, and uh, just listening or seeing some of the texts that are coming in, this this listener uh, says, I have a son and daughter who play hockey. My daughter plays co-ed. She started late, 13 years old. I'm proud to say that her experiences have been wonderful and everyone has been super supportive and positive. And I think you'll get a lot of that. Is it perfect? No, I'm not saying that. I've been uh, involved in minor hockey most of my life as a player and as a coach. Uh, I've coached from, you know, the initiation right on up to U18 uh, for many, many years. And um, going back to when I played to where it is now, it is absolutely night and day. And there has been a tremendous amount of work around that. And a lot of credit goes to Sheldon Kennedy and um, the work that he did following the Graham James incidents. Um, There's now, uh, it's called Respect in Sport, where all parents and all coaches and all officials and all players have to take this online training that deals with a lot of these issues, bullying and and all the rest of these sorts of things, and and puts a lot of education around that and a lot of emphasis around making sure that the culture of hockey is something that we look at, something that we deal with, and something that we, you know, continue to work on and continue to improve. So I'm pleased to hear that most Canadians out there think that, okay, there's work that needs to be done, and I think that's fair, but to say that we are making progress is encouraging. And, um, yeah, just, just the change that I have seen in my time and my involvement in minor hockey. I mean, back when I first coached back in the 90s, there was no education around there, none. None whatsoever. I mean, I was a kid, given a bunch of other kids, and uh, basically said, off you go. Now, coaches go through extensive training. You have to be certified to this level and that level. You have to take all these online courses in terms of respect in sport and safety and all sorts of things. So they've really changed the way that they approach this and realize that it's a problem. And I'm glad to hear that uh, most Canadians recognize that that's happening and some progress is being made. A melting glacier over in Europe has led to a pretty amazing discovery, a cave shelter that was used during World War I, filled with really incredible artifacts. It's very, very awesome. And joining us now to give us the details, we have Stefano Morzini, the scientific coordinator of the Heritage Park at Stelvio National Park. 
Stefano, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. Good morning. Thank you. This is nice to be there. This is such an interesting story. Um, just give us the details here. Let's just sort of let everybody know what we're talking about. Where was this cave discovered to start with? Well, the the cave shelter is located at the top of Mount Scorluzzo, 3,094 meters above sea level, in the Stelvio National Park territory, northern Italy, very close to the Swiss and Austrian border, where during the First World War, the war was fighted in a very high mountain context and in extreme environmental context. So during the war, this shelter was used by who, for how long and for what purpose? Well, during the war, this shelter was used by about 20 Austrian soldiers that were at the top of Mount Scorluzzo between 1915 to 1918. So they spent more than three years of their life in this extreme context. And they were just, was that like a base of operations or were they hiding out there for that length of time? Well, it was a place to hide and to hide against and to protect against the weather, the cold, the snow, and to protect against the artillery, the Italian artillery that uh, fight it against this position. Okay, now you guys have known about the location of this cave for some time, but you couldn't access it, right, due to snow and ice, a glacier, and now that is gone? Yeah, due to the global warming, to the Anthropocene, so the increasing of the temperature, it started to melt the ice and show the entrance of this cave shelter and in this in this moment the national park in 2017 started a recovery project to recover more than 300 items more than 300 relics of the daily life and of the warfare of these soldiers and the, the wall wooden part of this wooden barrack. So basically, we're talking about a time capsule here. What, what kind of items did you recover, and what has that taught you? What have you been able to learn about how life was for the people sheltering in this cave? Well, the, the first uh, idea that we had when uh, we came inside the barrack was to, to be into a time machine, as you said, so nothing changed in more than one century because the ice really well conserved all the items. And these items show, in particular, the extremely hard life of soldier in that place during the First World War, the starving condition of the life and the soldier during that time, the very cold weather that they have to face and how did they protect with uh, jackets, uh, uh, garments, uh, uh, blankets against the very cold that uh, you could have in such a place during the winter, consider minus, minus 40 Celsius degree. 
what did you find? What was inside the cave? Well, we found uh, what a, what a, a military a barrack could uh, could uh, conserve inside. So guns, bullets, uh, munitions, but also daily life objects, books, letters, postcards sent by the related of the soldiers, which is a very interesting way yeah. to to come back to their life. So. <laughs> I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. It is so high up, but it sounds like it was sort of a working installation at one point, or it was sort of it was a pretty well traveled and um, frequented area back during the war. It, it doesn't sound like it was completely remote at that time. Is it now? Is it sort of really hard for people to access, or is this something that people will be able to visit, kind of like a museum going forward? Well, the, this mountains where the, the First World War was fighted could be considered as an open-air museum because okay. many places can show what happened during the First World War with trenches, barracks, and uh, tracks that was, were built during the First World War. And these places, during the summertime, during the end of July, August, September, could be easy to access with good hiking books, and good uh, uh, walking experience in the mountains. But it's not an extremely hard place to reach. Um, it just sounds like an amazing discovery. Is it ongoing? Are you doing like excavations around this? Are there other areas you know, in, in proximity that may lead to more discoveries and give us a better indication of what life was like back then? Yeah, maybe in the, in the next years, uh, the, the retreat, the, the melting of the glacier will show other places and other, other relics of the First World War in these mountains. And the National Park is ready to, to evaluate and to conserve this historical heritage. Amazing. Really, really interesting stuff. Uh, Stefano, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That is Stefano Morazzini, who is a scientific coordinator of the Heritage Project at Stelvio National Park. He's also a teacher at the University of Bergamo. Good morning, everybody. Gather around. It's time for a space story. Love space stories. And this one's really cool because it involves UFOs. Uh, everyone loves space stories, especially aliens and UFO space stories. So you probably saw the news last week where the Pentagon released footage of these pyramid-shaped flying whatevers and said, we don't know what they are, which is a change in direction for the U.S. government. But we've seen it before. I mean, there's been this slow drip, drip, drip of, I think it's a change in direction. It's not anymore just saying, oh, it's not UFO. It can be explained. It's a weather balloon, blah, blah, blah. No, they're kind of saying, yeah, there are things out there. We, we don't really know what they are. And this week, the United States announced they're putting in a new system of monitoring that country's response to reports of unidentified flying objects. Now, joining us to talk a bit more about what's going on up there is Chris Rutkowski, who is a Winnipeg-based uh, researcher on UFOs. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Okay, so 
Uh, let's just start with the fact that it seems to me there's a change in approach from governments when it comes to UFOs and reporting what's going on and what they're aware of. Uh, they don't reject it out of hand anymore. They they come out with evidence and videos and audio saying this is what's happening and we don't know what it is. Do I have that right? Is this, is this new? Well, it's new in the United States. Canada's uh, had a little more uh, transparency over the past uh, number of years, but uh, certainly United States, it's been sort of a black hole on its own that uh, we simply have not known what the United States knows or has been doing about uh, the subject since about 1970. So uh, it's interesting they're talking about it. It's interesting that it's being discussed uh, through the Senate Intelligence Committee. It's being discussed by various senators and congressmen. So, yeah, it's it's actually quite interesting that uh, we're hearing a little bit more about that from official channels anyways. Yeah, right, exactly. It seems to be, uh, it adds some credence to it and makes it seem a lot more uh, serious and legitimate. So this new watchdog agency that they've announced, basically what they're saying is, okay, if we're monitoring what's going on up there, we need to monitor what we're doing with that information and making sure we're we're taking proper steps. I mean, basically, it's a, it's a security thing, correct? Uh, yeah, there's no question that the, it is a security issue if uh, pilots uh, are seeing things in the sky that shouldn't be there. One would have to think that's probably a security issue. Uh, the other thing that happened very recently is that uh, the uh, Inspector General of the United States Department of Defense uh, has uh, put together a, a request to sort of understand what it is that that people are doing with the information, because apparently they're not getting very good cooperation. They're asking various defense agencies uh, what they're doing about UFOs, and they're either getting ignored completely or just getting the the statement, you know, we're not doing anything, go away. So the inspector general wants to know, is money being wasted or Mm -hmm. spent or or what's going on? So there's some very interesting developments south of the border on uh, on UFOs. Uh, Now, what's going on? Are are we seeing more UFOs, do you think, or are we just, uh, is it, you know, official channels are being a little more transparent about what's out there? Well, it's quite interesting. Last year, for 2020, uh, in the United States and in Canada, uh, there was a tremendous increase in the number of UFO reports being reported through various channels. Uh, in fact, in Canada, we're looking at almost 50% more UFOs reported in 2020 than in 2019. Uh, so that was very significant, and the, the number in the States was very high as well. However, and I, I'll give you the breaking news, that we've just been crunching the first quarter of uh, Canadian UFO reports uh, in uh, 2021, and uh, we're down. In fact, uh, I don't know that maybe the aliens have gone into quarantine or something, but <laughs> but uh, we're barely a fraction of where we were in 2020. Um, when we take a look at uh, the fact that they're releasing this kind of information, let's just talk about that pyramid one most recently. Uh, just give us your take on the fact that they released this footage, and what do you think that indicates? What what were those? Well, the pyramid one is is quite interesting because, of course, it's just on a night vision scope, and and, uh, you can't tell it's a pyramid, of course. It's like a triangle. Um, And um, there have been some attempts to duplicate that using the similar kinds of imaging systems, and it turns out that that pyramid one is actually an artifact uh, of something that happens when you use it on looking at stars and planes and things like that. So it's sort of a red herring. However... The stuff that they've been releasing, they've been releasing additional photos uh, of of UFOs, and they're all taken by military personnel. The one thing we do know is that these uh, all these photos and videos are being taken by military personnel while on duty, and that in itself is is really interesting because we haven't had that type of information coming across before. And the the uh, 
um, the Pentagon is being very cagey about it. They're not saying that these things are unexplained. They're saying that these are things that they're using uh, in their studies of right. unidentified uh, aerial phenomena and UFOs. So they're not saying these things are unexplained, but uh, they say, oh, we were studying UFOs anyways. And this sort of came up in the conversation. So what's going on? Why are they teasing us like this? Yeah. And, and what are these pilots really seeing? For somebody in the field, like yourself, um, this sort of departure from the traditional and sort of like you say they're telling us more they're teasing us more what uh, what assumptions do you make based why is that happening well I, I think there's no question even though officially we've had no record of what was being seen uh, and reported to uh, the Pentagon since 1970 uh, we've found out since then that there have been uh, some projects uh, and programs and investigating and looking at UFO reports uh, all along uh, we know that uh, in 2005 to 2017, there have been a few things that have been reported. But for some very diligent uh, UFO investigators on their own have found dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of UFO reports from United States uh, military uh, uh, organizations and reports uh, all along. So we do know that the United States has been looking into the phenomenon, even though the official policy is there's no such thing as UFOs. Right. So something's going on, and it, <laughs> it, it's going to be interesting to see what's released. Um, we're talking a lot about the United States. What's the situation in Canada? Do we have any official sort of agency that is involved in this kind of work? Uh, absolutely. In fact, Canada has been pretty transparent. and uh, The disclosure has been a non-issue in uh, in Canada because uh, uh, it used to be the uh, under the uh, flag of the uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force, which passed it along to the National Research Council of Canada and the RCMP. And we have all the records uh, of their investigations going up to about 1990, 95, something like that. Um, and after that, uh, Transport Canada took over uh, the reporting of UFOs. And we have actually, I actually have, uh, uh, I just put together a set of records over the past 20 years of uh, reports to Transport Canada, mostly by pilots of uh, UFOs. There's actually a, a category of, of reporting called UFOs for pilots. And uh, just in the past 20 years, there's been something like, I don't know, 200 uh, cases that uh, are, are, are curious. You know, pilots reporting lights uh, pacing their planes, uh, silver discs uh, zipping around here and there, and things on radar appearing and disappearing. So these things are being reported. And the point is, if it's not aliens, and I think that's what most people assume, but it, let's say it's not aliens, and the pilots are just making mistakes, or mm -hmm. they're a little tired, or or the equipment's malfunctioning. To me, that's actually more of a concern because <laughs> you know there's a lot, there's hundreds of people relying on pilots to know what's in the sky and how to fly the planes. And if their instruments are are going haywire and they're seeing things, to me, that's very worrisome. Yeah, you make a really good point. Uh, no question. So we know that this this gear up to this this release that we're expecting this summer for people in the community like yourself. I mean, is this like Christmas? Is this something you've been waiting for for a long time? And this all will be revealed? Or are you still a little hesitant in saying, you know what, we're not going to get all the answers, but uh, maybe we'll take a step forward? Oh, I'm definitely a doubting Thomas in, yeah. in this sense, because we've heard this before. There was a congressional inquiry before. Uh, Gerald Ford actually called for one. Mm -hmm. uh, there was something that put before Congress in, uh, in 1968. Uh, we have records from that, and it's been discussed even in the Canadian Parliament uh, in the House of Commons quite a bit. So uh, having uh, one of these things come forward is, is interesting, but we've kind of heard it before, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if 
you know, June rolls around when the report's supposed to be released, and they say, you know what, we're going to have a few delays. Uh, <laughs> uh, we still have to dot the I's and, and do a few things. But it's also possible they're going to say, you know, this is actually too secret to release, so uh, here's a blank document and right. see what you can make of it. We'll redact everything. Uh, one last one before I let you go. Is it What about just the fact that now every single one of us is walking around with a camera and a video camera? Um, could that be sort of the reason why we're seeing more and more reporting of this and people seeing things and things? I mean, back in the old days when everyone didn't have a camera and someone said, hey, I saw a UFO, you know, yeah, sure. How many beers did you have kind of a thing, right? It wasn't taken that seriously. But a lot of this stuff can be backed up now with evidence, correct? Uh, yes and no. I mean, the uh, everybody does have a, uh, a camera that they're walking around with them constantly. But if you're ever, ever taken a try to take a photo of a star in the sky, with your cell phone, it don't work. (laughs) You get a big black screen. And so we have, everybody has the camera, but it's just not designed for the purpose of taking photos of things flying around in a dark sky, which is what most UFOs are. Um, And, you know, we, we are getting, you know, in the past year, we did see a lot, a lot more UFO reports, but as I mentioned, we're way down and, uh, you know, the number of cameras is still up there. Yeah. Interesting. Always fun to talk about this stuff. Chris, I really appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks. Thank you very much for joining us. That is Chris Rutkowski, who is a UFO researcher based out of Winnipeg. And yeah, if you saw the footage of the pyramids, uh, you know, he ruined it for us and said maybe it's just an artifact of the camera. Oh, well. But there are definitely, there was a Tic Tac one that was released, like a Tic Tac shaped thing that was flying around. And and some of the things that these machines are doing are, we can't do them as human beings. We we have not figured out this kind of technology. So it's interesting. I love thinking about it. I love talking about it. And we'll all look forward to that report in June. All right. Your calls on UFOs and aliens. Let's start with Darren. Darren, how are you this morning? Very good, thank you, Shane. And uh, thanks for that report earlier. That was great. Pretty cool, hey? Yeah, it was. So uh, just so that you know, we actually have a group here in Alberta called CE5 Alberta, which is uh, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, which means uh, contact with aliens that is human-initiated. Walk me through uh, that. What are we talking about? Well, there's there's actually a, a great uh, movie. Uh, there's a guy named Dr. Stephen Greer who has briefed uh, presidents in the U.S. for the last several presidents, um, and he believes that we can meditate and they and bring them in. That they can pretty much you know hear our our, our meditation and, and come forward. And so it's I, like telepathic. Like you guys put out the message to come down and visit, and and they respond. You bet. And we did seven uh, sessions last year, two sessions this year. Um, there has not been one that we haven't done that we didn't see something that we didn't know what it was. Okay, okay. We'll slow down here. This is fascinating to me. How, <laughs> how many people are involved in your group and how many people go out on these missions? Well, we have, actually, it's really taken off. We have a Facebook page uh, uh, called C5 Alberta, and we have close to 700 people following it now. Now, some of those are from other parts of the world, of course, just interested in seeing what we're doing. But we, you know, you know, we can have, they can vary from sometimes having a small group of six or seven to, okay. you know, you have it now, of course, because of COVID, you know, we have to... Uh, you know, adhere to those protocols, so that's kind of slowed us down a bit. But uh, okay, what do you, you know, guys we, do? We like you go out in the woods somewhere and, and, and sit there and meditate. Is that how it works? 
Yeah, we, we try and get uh, some location. We've, you know, I mean, Siva Beach and, and up by Barhead and all kinds of different drum heller even. And, and we get in a circle, we do uh, meditation. There's tones that we play that uh, Dr. Gurr has come up with. And, uh, and, you know, it takes about 40 minutes, 30, 40 minutes. Of, and then we do, we actually vector them in. We, we, it's called uh, coherent uh, thought sequencing where we kind of show them where we are by the thoughts in our mind of, and they come galaxy. now. They've 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 heard you and they've showed up. Well, something has. I can't guarantee they're little green men, but we definitely <laughs> see things up there. Okay, what have you seen? Now, walk me through this. What what did you see? Well, the first thing that we saw, I, I call it where they they flash their high beams at us that were, you know, we could be you know pitch black and nice clear sky, and then uh, they you know all of a sudden they will come and they'll be. A, big bright flash for two three seconds and just to let us know they're there and things we we see ships moving we do use um on uh, night vision technology um infrared sonar things like that that uh, can help us uh to to locate them and uh yeah probably the most amazing thing that ever happened was uh, out at Sea the beach we had uh when we were doing our session and <clears throat> it was actually only the second one we ever did last year and we saw these kind of bright lights that you know, that, like we saw in the sky, but around the, like in the trees and on the ground. And I'm like, well, well, wait, what's this? And they weren't as big, of course, but we, uh, you know, we started, we looked, started looking into it and, and got closer and they, and on, here's me trying to quick Google what, you know, what do fireflies look like? <laughs> what are, you know, I'm trying to be that, you know, trying to be semi-rational here with us. Um, but they were absolutely amazing. And I asked them to, you know, come closer to us and, they they did. They came within six or eight feet. One of our girls that just buzzed her head and went Come right on. Oh, you know what? It was life changing. <laughs> and 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 Shay, just to be clear, the people in this group, I mean, you know, uh, not to, to say, but I mean, these aren't crazy people. They're good people that have great, you know, great jobs, and you know, and you know, stand up people in society, you know, one's a police officer, you know, one's up there actually in the government and, you know, just, just a great cross section of people. And we all saw, and it was life changing. It was absolutely amazing. These beings of light. Now, again, I don't think they're little green men. Right, yeah. We just don't. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right out of time, but I'm, I might book you for a whole segment one day. I'm fascinated by this kind of stuff. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.